Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live on a Tuesday evening. It's good to be with you tonight as we begin to look at the next phase in the war for Ukraine. It's going to be an interesting conversation with my two guests tonight, Walter Leck and Michael McKay. How are you, gentlemen? Nice to see you guys. Hello. We'll introduce you a little bit, Walter. I also should mention that Eric Garland will be with us in the second half of the show as we continue our investigation into the command and control of Donald Trump during January the 6th. Just how in charge was he of everything that happened on the insurrection? We have brand new details, brand new texts, brand new emails to go through, and we'll go through all of that at around 7.30 Eastern time. But that's coming up a little bit later on. But let's begin with our main story tonight, which is all about the battle for the Donbass, also known in our world as Saving Mariupol, which has now become the scene of quite an intense standoff between Russian forces and what's left of the Mariupol Defense Force, who are now sheltered in the city's main fortress. It's a place called the Azvotal Industrial Complex. We'll show you that in the map in a second. But it's a giant, very complicated maze of steel and concrete. And inside of there, there are about a thousand people uh, maybe more in terms of survivors or civilians from the initial attack on Mariupol, plus many armed forces. The Russians have given the people inside that compound a deadline. So far, that deadline has gone and passed, and the military that inside that steel fortress is refusing to uh, surrender. So we're looking at a very, very tense standoff. And our two guests tonight, you know Michael McKay pretty well. Michael McKay is our Ukrainian expert. Walter Lech is a new face to us here. Walter runs a really interesting Twitter spaces, I guess is how you said, Twitter space. But because it's plural, it's a Twitter spaces. And uh, well, it's all about uh, people from Ukraine, uh, whether they're joining internationally or from Ukraine itself, to get together on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis. But before we tell, talk a little bit more about that, uh, Walter, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? You're a doctor, who, uh, an obstetrician, who left Ukraine two years ago and then found yourself you know, with some of your friends fighting the war in Ukraine, and you decided to do something about it. Tell us a little bit more about how you started the Twitter space. Yes, thank you. Well, uh, it was uh, somewhat of an ad hoc effort. I've been doing these spaces occasionally. It's a new thing on Twitter, but it happened so that I was in a space on the 23rd and it lasted for a while. And actually, we were witnessing this Russian offensive starting online in the space, uh, essentially just watching the stream from a checkpoint in between Russian-occupied Crimea and the rest of Ukraine, the Russian attack on the border guard. And after that, we just didn't stop. But what makes it so interesting is that you have two of your friends that are actually fighting in the battle over there, who are also, one of them is a doctor, I guess, as well. Tell us a little bit more about them and how they're, it's also a place for you guys to talk to each other about what's going on. Yeah, well, as unfortunately, the war touched everyone in Ukraine to a different extent, of course, but some are directly involved, some are just helping military in another way. Uh, my good friend from medical school is in a field hospital. Actually, he's in the hospital, semi-field hospital nowadays in Bakhmut. He's a military surgeon. And my other best friend is right now is in the 125th Territorial Defense Brigade in Lviv. And a couple of friends in TDF in Kyiv who weren't that active or fighting as well as the one who is in view because they are being trained mostly as the reserve units and a couple of friends in Aerorozvitka who essentially the drone reconnaissance part and they're directly involved. 
Well, it must be very hard knowing that they're in life-threatening situations on a regular basis, probably, and then also uh, knowing that they're to defend your country. It's inspiring as we look at all these Ukrainians doing all of this, but it's also just devastating when you think about the, the toll on a normal country just a few weeks ago. How do you feel about how things are going there right now? Things are manageable and under control. That's the most important part, because if you recall all the quote-unquote military experts when we were discussing how long Ukraine will last and how uh, this Russian new offensive will progress. All of them expected Ukraine, basically Ukraine's military, to fold in 72 hours. Specifically, that was regarding Ukraine's anti-air defenses and Ukraine's air force. Well, that did not happen. Both of those are still active, despite the casualties and despite the damage, obviously, that was inflicted upon them. But they are downing Russian jets. So same goes for uh, all the brigades that Ukraine has and all the newly formed brigades, which are in a large number. And essentially at this point, the thing that Ukraine needs is weapons, 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 weapons. We have people, we have people willing to fight on the ground. They are receiving training, but the weapons, specifically rocket artillery, tube artillery, and other things, anti-air systems are in dire need. This is something that Ukraine needs, and this is something that Russians have in abundance, unfortunately. Just before we went to air, there was an announcement of an additional $800 million package that will be sent from the United States to to Ukraine, in addition to the $800 million announced yesterday. But before we leave that question alone, because I admire every time I talk to someone from Ukraine, the resolve you have and how strong everyone appears to be and how militarily focused and in a singular voice you're all speaking. But, I mean, as a human being, uh, it's, it's tough for me to ask this question because, of course, it's devastating. But how do you feel about things? It's not just about things are stable. It's also a lot of what you know in that country has changed. Obviously, the country itself has changed dramatically after 2014. We took part in the revolution of dignity. I took part in that to a certain extent alongside of, with a couple of my best friends. And that was the turning point, essentially. That was a point when uh, Russian grip on Ukraine slipped and they couldn't wage the hybrid war anymore in a kind of clandestine way. They had to resort to kinetic part of war and that's when uh, after Ukraine was weakened and the executive branch of power of Ukraine was weakened after the revolution of dignity that's when Russia essentially backstabbed Ukraine occupied Crimea and started the war in the east of Ukraine and occupied two Ukrainian regions parts of two Ukrainian regions Donetsk and Luhansk so after that Ukraine was mobilizing itself and changing dramatically people were motivated and they remain motivated they were fighting on maidan for the change for the better against the corruption in the government against authoritarian regime against the police state this is what we stood for for three months on maidan and that's what we continue to fight for in one way or another and obviously our military had to fight for that and even more than that against you know, basically russian aggressors in the east for eight years and now we're just in a, another stage of this war, new Russian offensive, as Michael correctly emphasized. It's just the no, next stage. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Walter, because Zev, you know I've been saying this several times on this program. Mm. The real change in Ukraine happened in 2014 mm. with the Revolution of Dignity and following. And 
the last 54 days have just made it more apparent to other people. But not recognizing this phenomenal change that happened in the Ukrainian people eight years ago, this substantial change, is not recognizing it is a mistake that Putin makes when he thinks that you know he'll be welcomed as a liberator and and so on or that uh, some kind of pro-russian uh, faction could possibly lead in ukraine medvedchuk or whoever it's just impossible but that's because putin didn't understand that and also to an extent the western experts who thought ukraine would fall in 72 days also failed to take in that into account they were so focused on the hardware and the that aspect and the numbers game that they didn't realize the spiritual divide of an aggressor that was poorly motivated to say the least terrible morale and a defender that had all the motivation in the world mm. that's a really good point and you have said it many times and it's just important to underline that repeatedly now let's move on to what happened in mariupol because there is a devastating situation underway. You know, we all understand that there is now a much bigger offensive on the Donbass. It seems that both sides, both Russians and Ukrainians, have emphasized that that entire area is now being contested. But in Mariupol, there is a tiny little stretch of land that, that is what is remains of Ukrainian stronghold in Mariupol. And I'll just put up a little map here that shows you all the red areas basically controlled by the Russians. And this uncolored area, this yellow area here, is where the Ukrainians are and largely the uh, um, the Azov Battalion, are based right now. And that's where they're doing a lot of the fighting right now. It is a steel complex where built by the Soviets, so it's a fortress. It really is made of steel and concrete, lots of underground shelters. Inside of there, there are many as a thousand people, civilians, seeking shelter from the oncoming forces. But there's also the remainder of the garrison, because the, the garrison that's been defending Mariupol there. I don't know who wants to go first here. Maybe, Michael, maybe you can update us first on what's, what do you know about what's going on inside the steel factory over here? Well, of course, it, it is grim to be besieged in a tightening uh, circle. We know that the Russians are bombing the Azov-style plant with strategic bombers, with uh, very heavy bombs, uh, airdrop bombs. They bombed a hospital uh, close to that area, the last functioning one in uh, Mariupol. So the conditions are grim, but on the other hand, I saw the video uh, released today as of uh, battalion soldiers destroying a armored personnel carrier of the Russians on the street. Soldiers uh, taking selfies each other. So, you know, they have internet and they are fighting. So it is grim, but they've been besieged for almost from the beginning. Well, the, uh, let's say the second week of the uh, the offensive. And uh, it's just astonishing. In, in recent days, that area, just to the left of that area, the seacoast was uh, taken by uh, the Russians and uh, the uh, uh, two uh, uh, gunboats that uh, were belonged to the Ukrainian Navy uh, were seized. Yeah, and the area just uh, to the north up, uh, there was a small area there was taken. So it's now the the area of this uh, steel plant that is well, well, under Ukrainian control. But Azov sent a message saying, we will fight as long as we have ammunition, and then we will fight hand to hand. So when you see that, you see why Russians giving ultimatums, this is meaningless, and of course they're ignored. Absolutely. Walter, this is now the last stand of Mariupol. When it falls, if it falls, 
it's going to be um, a significant factor in the war because it'll mean that many of the soldiers that have been bombarding Mariupol will be able to turn their attentions elsewhere, the Russian soldiers. But it will also be significant that a major city in Ukraine has fallen, even though it's taken such a long time. What do you know about what's going on at the steel plant and also your thoughts about you know, what's happening to that city? So the story of Mariupol is quite tragic. First of all, the defenders, they show absolute courage and valiance by protecting the people of Mariupol, the civilians who were hiding in bomb shelters all over the city in the basements. And essentially at this point, they flocked to the Azovstal compound. Or Essentially, Azovstal is the biggest uh, steelworks company and the steelwork industrial complex in Ukraine. It's a huge, massive complex within the city. It's like city within the city. So uh, this is, again, yes, you're correct. This is the last stand of Azov Regiment, the last stand of the 36 Marine Brigade units who are in the city. And both of these, alongside with some smaller units of Ukraine's border guards and attachments of from Ukraine's National Guard, this is their last stand. And they're protecting civilians at least a thousand of civilians who are hiding underground. And the ultimatum from Russian aggressors, from Russian invaders was essentially we're starting or we are to start bombing the whole thing with a three ton or 3000 kilogram bombs. So the things can penetrate essentially bomb shelters, kill civilians who are hiding inside of those. Just because Russians have hard time to was dislodging Azov and was was dislodging um, 36 Marine Brigade. So again, another incident of complete disregard of civilian lives. And they just uh, use civilian lives as a bargaining chip, essentially, to get and eliminate, essentially, Ukrainian defenses in that area. But again, it's just a prowess of Azov fighters, prowess of Ukrainian Marine uh, 36 Brigade, who defend the city and protect the civilians, and a testament to their will and unyielding valiance in protecting mm-hmm. the city. And again, it's Azov Regiment who are doing the heavy lifting alongside with the Ukrainian Marines. Yeah, this is the commander of that brigade. I'm not sure I'm saying his name correctly, but Serhei Volinia, I think. He's the one who said that he will continue to conduct operations and to complete our military tasks as long as we receive them. He says he's got no intention of laying down their weapons at all. No one believes the Russians. He says, he goes on to say that um, every last attempt to to have safe passage from Ukrainians from that city has been, you know, many of them has turned out to be deadly for the people escaping. And so he's not going to bow to any demands from the Russians, as you point out, a real act of valor there. But it also speaks to the enormous amount of war crimes that have uh, happened in that city and elsewhere in Ukraine, but specifically in Mariupol. I mean, what we are going to find out in the coming weeks is how devastating the scene is there with uh, tens of thousands of people probably killed. Yes, but the problem is most likely we will not, unfortunately, and we should keep this in mind because Russians uh, deployed a number of field crematoriums and they're essentially eliminating the war crimes and the evidence of war crimes. They're burning the bodies of civilians and essentially the estimate is that approximately 20,000 uh, civilians were killed in this city. And again, the city is it's a huge city. It's like San Diego in USA. Mm-hmm. This is the site of the city. It's more than half a million city. Probably it was even reaching one million because of refugees from Russian occupied Donetsk and Luhansk. 
So this is the scale of the atrocities. This is the scale of Russian war crimes. And again, Russians are attempting to conceal, to hide that. And all the attempts to establish humanitarian corridor from Azovstal were denied by Russians because they essentially want to wipe out all the witnesses. Yeah. Yes. And as well as the mobile crematoria, they are also using these filtration camps to identify and liquidate witnesses. So they are covered up. So the longer that we say, longer we ignore Mariupol, or if it falls, the longer we let the Russians remain in occupation, the more time we will give them to cover up their war crimes. I got a sense today, listening to Zelensky and others, that this is going to be a much more difficult phase than the first phase of this war. And that seemed like a very difficult one already. But it, the sentiment seems to be that, you know, there's no guarantee here that Ukraine will prevail. And that sort of the optimism in the, in the West might be a little bit overblown. And maybe even in Ukraine might be a little bit overblown that there is a lot of optimism, but Still, Russia is massing a huge number of forces along the border there. I'll just put up a map to show everyone how, how many forces. I mean, it's thousands and thousands of troops, and it's going to be a much more pitched battle than the one we, we have seen up until now. Walter, what's your sense of the mood on the ground? I mean, is there a, people as optimistic as they've been, or do they realize how complicated this next section of the war is going to be? Well... Obviously, uh, people are highly motivated, and there is a uh, reasonable optimism. And everyone understands that it's not the fight against essential. At this point, we have to understand that this is the, the war between two nations, the whole of Ukraine and the whole of Russia. It's not just two armies, and it's a fight to the end. But I fail to see any prospect for Russian army in Ukraine whatsoever. Yes, Ukraine might be losing some territories, unfortunately, at this point again. But essentially, it's all of Ukraine and all of Ukrainians who are willing to essentially thwart the progress of Russian army whenever they can. So it's, it's inconceivable to project, even if that happens, how Russians will be able to hold the territory. Because, again, it's all of Ukraine, all the Ukrainians, doesn't matter whether they speak Russian or Ukrainian, whether they are in the east of Ukraine or south of Ukraine. Everyone is willing to fight Russian invaders, and everyone understands the gravity, what happens if they don't. And the, the gravity of that is that the end result will be similar to what happened in Bucha. Mm. So there are already thousands of Buchas all over Ukraine. It's not just single city of Bucha where that atrocities and war crimes happen. It's all over Ukraine. Whenever Russian boot steps in, it's in the south, it's in the east, it's in the small villages, it's, it's in the smaller towns, it's in the towns like Izum and Volnovakha, which essentially were leveled down and are no more. So this is happens where essentially Russian boot steps in and Ukrainians understand that and they're willing to fight. That is an uh, image you paint that is quite stirring, but also quite depressing in some ways, because it doesn't seem like the Russians know very much about humanity or humane treatment. And it does seem like they're determined to do anything they can to win, which is not going to happen, but surely a difficult path ahead. Michael, what's your sense of the prognosis looking forward as we look at this next phase of the battle for Donbass? Well, I think what you were saying about uh, what President Zelensky said, that the next phase will be difficult. But he says in the next breath, but we are certain of our victory. 
And I agree with what uh, Walter just said. There is no prospect for a Russian victory. And it then becomes a practical question of how efficiently we'll bring about a Ukrainian victory, because this is a titanic war between two countries, not just two armies, as Walter said, and how much war crimes by the Russians we will continue to allow before we bring about that victory. So I, th I think it, we should listen to what he's saying. Yes, it will be difficult. And that means we need to do the difficult things. And the sooner we do them, the better. Because as you just said, Zev, it is depressing, but I think we have to face it. I saw two things today that really struck me about this enemy that we're facing, the Russians. One was television showing an attack on a Ukrainian village uh, somewhere in the uh, area of Severodonetsk, uh, which is uh, the western part of Luhansk region, and they were bombarding it with these uh, rocket artillery, the village. There were no Ukrainians there. They were just destroying every building there. And I also saw something on social media, a, a trend in Russia, people wearing uh, T-shirts and clothing that says, I am not ashamed, mm. that that's actually one of the slogans of the Russians, that they're proud of this. And I think a lot of people know that uh, today Putin honored one of the military units that took part in the uh, Bucha uh, genocide right. with some military honor. That is the essence of the enemy. Exactly. And, you know, he's looking at uh, May 9th, I guess, is some day of a declaration of victory. It doesn't look like he's going to get anywhere near that. One more point to have about why I'm so confident about uh, an eventual Ukrainian victory and why we have to find a way to that. Um, you were talking about Mariupol, and if it falls, uh, it will release Russian troops and will be discouraging to the Ukrainians. I don't quite see it that way. I see Mariupol to, to an extent the way Ukrainians regard the Battle of Donetsk Airport in 2014, 2015. This was also a horrendous siege. Also, the attackers were primarily soldiers from Chechnya in that case too. This battle lasts a long time. Tiny group of Ukrainian defenders holding out for many, many months until they were ultimately defeated. But they were defeated at a point, as they said, we left the airport because there was no longer an airport to defend. Mm -hmm. And that was true. The, uh, the Russians could not capture the airport, so they simply destroyed it. And we see that this is horrible because of the civilians that are there. We see this happening at the Azov Stell plant as well. But will it release troops? No. Uh, uh, Russia has some of its worst troops, the uh, Kadyrovites, uh, in this battle. Will it motivate the Russians more? No, it won't. And actually, it will steal the resolve of Ukrainians because they will, the story of the Azov Battalion, the 36th Marine Brigade Division will be thought about the same way that the cyborgs were from the Battle of Donetsk Airport. And they will enter into legend like that. They already have. Um, before you leave, I just want to share one little note here. Um, this struck me today as a little happier note, even though it's still an image of war. But this guy is really a, cute little guy. His name is Patron, which, by the way, in Ukrainian means ammo. Is that right? Is that what it means? Cartridge. Cartridge. Cartridge, yeah. He's discovered 150 explosive devices. He's a service dog in service in Cherniv. He's done a lot of saving of lives, I guess, this little guy. So a little happier note out of Ukraine tonight as the battle continues for Donetsk and also Dobas, but also of Mariupol. Any last thoughts as we look at this battle tonight? 
well, apparently we are just in the opening stages of what's coming. So far, from what I've read, I've heard Russia deployed 76 battalion tactical groups or are deployed. 76 uh, BTGs are deployed in Ukraine and there are 11 fresh uh, newly formed BTGs being deployed towards Izum. So yes, they're heading towards Kamyansk, I reckon, towards Leman and towards Slovyansk, but they're facing stiff Ukrainian resistance. And if Ukrainians essentially withdraw from certain area, that's only to essentially uh, avoid encirclement. So again, we are impressed in the prowess of Ukrainian military. They're defending Ukraine in a you know modern way of defending trying to counterattack, to withdraw when necessary, and essentially counterattacking and targeting Russian supply and logistic columns, something that should be done. Unfortunately, that also implies losing some of the territories, and Russians managed to occupy these territories, and this is where the grim reality kicks in. We have civilians, Ukrainian people, who remained under Russian occupation, and these people are, they need to be saved rather sooner than later, because we see what happens to people, to Ukrainians under Russian occupation. Essentially, we're witnessing genocide of Ukrainian people by Russian invaders. I believe that's something that we are witnessing and will be witnessing. The battle unfolds and we'll see what happens. So far, Ukrainians prove that they're willing to and they're capable, what's most important, to to defend Ukraine and uh, inflict severe casualties upon Russian military. And again, something that I wanted to mention. In this recent package, 800 million package, there are 18 howitzers Mm -hmm. provided to Ukraine, right? 155 millimeter howitzers. Just for the general understanding, what are 18 howitzers? Ukraine has 30 brigades. One brigade has artillery, like parts of the brigade, which consists of four subparts. One subpart essentially is around 20 howitzers. So this is the extent of the 18 howitzers. It's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it sounds like you're going to get good. more in the next week, but uh, I know, I know what you're good, saying, but, but it's not enough. More. All right, thank you very much. Well, Walter Leck, people can find you online. Uh, tell them on your Twitter account, uh, what is it? It's at Walter Leck. First name, last name, Walter, okay. at Walter Leck. If they want to check out your Twitter spaces, they'll find out by going to your Twitter account. And Michael uh, McKay, tell everyone your Twitter account. I'm at MHMCK. Thank you both for being here tonight. I'm sure we'll have you back on the show. And uh, thank you for your very honest and generally upbeat uh, thoughts about what's going to be going on in the next few weeks in Ukraine. It's going to be tough, but it does feel like uh, the Ukrainian people are just unbelievably strong in this fight. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative. Through COVID corruption and a coup to a war in Ukraine. At Narrative, we've been telling you the truth about Putin and Xi since 2016. Narrative, it's where truth lives. 